All right. Okay. How are we doing here? Any any major blanks? We only, just to be clear, we only got as far as this Sunday. We only got as far as 2A2. So we'll pick up next week 2B. But from the beginning, the 2A2, need any major of the blanks filled. Are we good? Oh, Deb. Microphone. Um, it would be... One C, what a man truly is. Is. Okay, thank you. The, 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 the contrast being, here's what I think I am, here's what I'm in fact doing, and here's the reality. And the reality is in contrast to what he thinks. He thinks one thing, the reality is the opposite, the other. Um, yeah. Okay. Any other blanks? Then questions on the text, what we covered. Oh. Is there an appropriate time and place for the phrase, don't be so hard on yourself? Because as a mother of small children, I'm on the receiving end of that sometimes, and I don't know what to do with it because of texts like this. However, I'm also someone that does not always have realistic standards or goals as far as... Um, trying to be perfect, which obviously I can't be. So how, is, is that something I can? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's um, it, it, it's all the measuring stick you're using to measure yourself by. Generally, when we're being too hard on ourselves, we tend to be moving more in a legalistic direction. But, and, or simply, so-and-so is able to read four books a week. I'm failing. Or so-and-so gets a two-hour quiet time every day. I'm failing. B measure yourself biblically. What are you pursuing? What are you valuing? What are you pouring yourself into? And and I think there is how you're going to get an accurate measurement. Um, if you're measuring yourself by other moms, by other people, that's where I think it can sort of get hard. And that's also where we need ourselves as a body. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why the local church is so essential is even as you and I are called to make self-evaluations, we're evaluating each other. We're all responsible for each other's discipleship. So the very nature of self-deception means if I'm self-deceived, I can't do anything about it, right? <laughs> I need someone else to say, hey, uh, Jeremy, how you doing, <laughs> right? So one of the things I'd say is if the people who know you, you know, I see you growing. I see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I see you um, evidencing works of faith. I, th that conglomerate, God's word, myself, my own self-evaluation, those who know me, all of that comes together to give me some idea of how I'm doing and making sure we're measuring the right thing, our intentions, what we're pursuing. I was listening to C.S. I listened to C.S. Lewis essays collection. You're going to go to sleep. Uh, the guy, Ralph Cochran, who reads it, he's got the most soothing voice in the world. I mean, um, no, so much. So I was listening to a recording of Lewis. They actually have a couple snippets of his talks he gave during World War II. And I'm like, that's not Lewis. Um, but one of the things he was talking about is, <coughs> um, the danger of both being either too hard or too easy on ourselves and why we need other people around us to, to do that, that we can have a more accurate appraisal of how we're doing, that I, I need other people to speak into my life. I need other people to, to show me where I'm strong or encourage me where I'm doing well. I mean, think of the other application. If, 
if I actually tell five people, I'm going to try to govern my time. I did this once. I remember when I was in college, I um, was being challenged and convicted about speaking the truth in love. My coming from a perspective where I knew true things, but my heart never engaged them, I never bore them out. I was all about the truth and not very much about love. I was sort of like some Old Testament prophet coming down from the mountains, you know. And I just thought when people said, well, be nice, you just mean don't make my point firmly. And I had to learn, no, you can make firm, strong points graciously. But at the time, I thought, oh, heck with that. I'll just make my point, drive my point home. And so I was convicted and challenged on that. And I was talking to some friends of mine, and I was greatly encouraged when over the next two or three months, one of the time, two or three of these guys came forward and said, hey, man, I've really seen some growth. You have no idea how encouraging that is. Well, people can't really do that unless you're sharing with others what you want prayer. And what you, James is going to get to the point where he tells us to confess our sins to one another. And not everybody, but some people. And so as that group of people, one of, one of the great things about sharing an area you want to grow in, and one application, if you've been convicted and you want to put it into practice, tell somebody. A, it gives you some accountability. Two, it gives you a cheering section when you're succeeding, which is great, you know? Um, so I, I'd look to not simply your own self-evaluation because it is entirely possible. Paul talks about the tendency in man-made religion of it being harsh and severe to the body. And so, I mean, I remember, um, I, I remember guys going through seminary who really admired some of these unusual people like Al Mohler, unusual in his work output. Al Mohler sleeps, I think, four hours a night, usually writes about a four to 5,000 word essay every night, records a program, teaches Sunday school, governs a seminary, and usually writes a couple books a year and reads about a dozen books a week. And they want to do that. And they're thinking, man, I'm a failure. Where in the Bible does God tell you? <laughs> What's required of a steward is diligence. And God gives one talent to some people, and he gives five talents to some people, and he gives ten talents to some people. What's required is faithfulness. And faithfulness for you might look very different than faithfulness to someone with a different number of talents, more or less. So the danger would be that, the other danger could be, if you're very gifted, look at somebody who's plodding along, and be like, well, I'm doing better than them, so I'm fine. I mean, it can go either way. So Paul says in, I believe, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, when they measure themselves by themselves, they show that they're, of, they're foolish. So use biblical criteria. And there I would say don't be too hard or too soft. I'd, when you're using actual text, I say let the text be as hard as the text is. Um, make sure you understand it. To me, it's helpful grammatically. You've got a participle. So participles speak of like, um, it's like a verbal noun. So it's, you're saying this while you're doing this. You're not bridling. So it's not picturing a total, complete bridal. Rather, there's no bridling taking place. If there's no bridling being taken place in your life while you're thinking you're doing well serving God, you're deceiving yourself. So I need to be bridling. Well, there's going to be a varying degrees of effort and zeal and um, fruit bearing in that activity. But you can say one thing with certainty. If you're not doing it at all, you're deceiving yourself. If you're also at the same time thinking, I'm doing great serving God. So that's a long answer to your question because it's entirely possible, you're right, to be too hard on yourself. The Bible, I emphasize the warning the other way simply because so much of the wisdom of this age would tell you don't be too hard on yourself. You're far better. You're a, you're a, you're a sunbeam. You're, a, you're just a valuable. You have some limitless potential. And there's some truth to that. There is. And James is like, yeah, but you're also, your heart's full of wicked things. You're going to need to be bridled in that tongue. And, and um, more and more, I encounter the, the therapeutic wisdom of this world. No, you've got to speak your truth. You gotta st- 
I'm reading a book um, by Carl Truman, which if you're interested in this stuff, um, the, oh, good grief. It's called The uh, Supremacy of the Modern Self. Uh, I believe that's the title. Hold on, I'll tell you. Um, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And it's, it's focusing on, yeah, that, that the new notions of freedom and new notions of self-actualization are all about not repressing anything. Be your authentic you. Well, as Christians, we have to admit the authentic me deserves to go to hell. Christ died so that the authentic me could be nailed to the cross and be transformed into the image of Christ. So, yes, there are types of repression that are wrong we shouldn't do, but there's plenty of repression biblically we ought to do when it's repressing and constraining sin. Um, so it's not as simple as repression bad. Authentic self, good. It's nuanced. Um, so that's when I'm hitting those notes, I'm mostly trying to push back against the anticipation that the wisdom of the world would say, if you feel it, do it. If you think it, say it. Express yourself. Be the real you. Don't restrain yourself. And James is saying, oh, no. <laughs> There's all types of stuff we need to restrain. But, yes, we can be too hard on ourselves. Absolutely. Um, and, I'd, and I'd also evaluate from the Bible gives many criteria. There's, there's, James gives us these three axes. First John gives us some other ones. How are you dealing with your confession of sin? Are you willing to admit your sin? Are you willing to confess your sin? Um, so First John chapter 1. If you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right. So there'd be another axis. Am I somebody who is regularly, when the Lord shows me sin, confessing it? Or am I excusing it away? You go on to chapter 2, you get to the keeping his commandments. Okay, here's another measure. Chapter three, you get, no, chapter two, you also get my worldliness. Am I loving the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. Well, there's a measurement. Do I love the things of the world? Do I love this world system? You get to chapter three, do I love the brethren? Do I love other believers? So the other danger of being too hard on yourself, if you just take one of the biblical criteria for self-evaluation, you can miss the rest. I'd say there's a full panoply of things to be measuring. Just like when you go to the doctor for a physical, they're checking numerous, numerous things on you, not just one thing. So yeah, if you, if you only get your grip around one, you could also find one that you're really good at. I love other believers. I love being with other people. I must be great. Well, the Bible gives us numerous of these things, and it, it's not just an individual. It's also the rest of the body, you know, attesting, amening, affirming. But that's only going to happen to the degree the rest of the body knows where you're at and how you're doing. Oh, I remember now the point C.S. Lewis was making that I totally forgot after mentioning it. He was saying, we have no idea what the starting point of two people are. Someone was saying, look at this atheist. is very kind, and this Christian's a jerk. Well, I don't know how much more of a jerk this person would be if they weren't a Christian, and I don't know how much kinder this atheist would be if they were a Christian. I don't know their starting point. Some people have bigger besetting sins. What matters is what direction you're heading in. Are you moving in the direction of self-discipline, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, holiness, Christ-likeness? If you are, fantastic. And don't feel bad because somebody's half a mile ahead of you. They could have been a Christian longer. They, they, their story is different. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? Conversely, you could actually not have a ton of external besetting sins and internally be moving in the wrong direction entirely patting yourself on the back, approving of yourself, but externally, you, you don't drink, you don't cuss, you don't hang with those who do, right? Or no, is it drink, cuss, or chew, smoke or chew, or hang with those who do, right? That was the, something like that. So, so that's a long-winded answer to your question, that it's not as simple, yes, we can be too hard on ourselves, but I think there's a way to get balance, which would be a more holistic biblical approach and involve others.
Okay. Yes. Oh, Bennett, yes. I noticed that they mention tongue a lot in James. And the question is, why do they say tongue a lot? Well, the tongue is either biblically speaking. It's like, oh. is it partial and bad, or is it good, or what is it? Sure, sure. But when James talks about the tongue, he's referring to the organ of speech, and by implication, all the speech that the tongue produces. When he says, bridle your tongue, he means shut your mouth, don't talk as much, use discipline, wisdom, and thought in your speech. And then in chapter 3, he makes it clear. He keeps saying the tongue, the tongue, the tongue, by which he means the tongue and that which it produces. Well, our tongue, the reason why my words can be distinguished, some of you might think they can't be, but the reason why when my words can be understood, the reason they can be distinguished is because of this organ in my mouth, the tongue. And it is responsible for the clarity and these different sounds that come out of my mouth. So James is talking about the tongue. He means the speech. So when, you, he, when he says tongue in this passage, speech, the words you say, the things you say, that's what he's talking about. So he's asking us, ask questions about God. Is he asking that? No, the, the, the fundamental command he's saying is to bridle your tongue, to bridle your words, to restrain your speech, because back in verse, um, I believe, 19, he said, we all must be slow to speak. So the first statement, is it 19 or is it 22? It's 22, isn't it? 22, you got to be slow to speak. Then here, another way of saying being slow to speak is bridling your tongue. They're two different images to refer to the same thing, which is self-discipline and pur purposefulness. Purposefulness? Mom? Purposefulness? Intent. Intent. Okay. In what you say. So James is calling on us to, to not speak as much. And when we do speak, to be purposeful and intent in speaking. That's what he's talking about. Purposeful means what? Not without thinking. I've given what I'm about to say. Here would be a practical test. Before I speak, have I given it thought and consideration to whether it would be good, helpful, appropriate, fitting, things like that. If I just speak without thinking, I'm not doing what James is telling me to do. The wise of heart considers his words, the Proverbs say, before he speaks. So this is all about not just speaking spontaneously, but rather thoughtfully, purposefully, intentionally speaking. Does that make more sense? that I have a habit of interrupting people in the middle of a conversation and that I don't have patience to wait my turn. This is precisely an encouragement from James to, to strive to do better. And we all have to do better, Bennett. But if that's, if that's where the Lord is showing you need to do better, do better at that. Amen. I've been practicing. Good. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Next question. Lois Sweet. <coughs> Excuse me. This is just an observation. Your your um, statement that we don't see God, but we see the man or woman that is made in the image of God, and 
our speech to them should be reflect what we would say if it were God. And I just was so struck by that. I'm thinking also our actions towards towards the people around us should also reflect our actions towards God. Mm. Um, this At, amen. In fact, John, the point that, I, that he implies in chapter 3, John makes in 1 John explicitly. Um, turn to 1 John. I want to say it's 4. Um, where is it? No, that's Gospel of John. No wonder I'm not finding it. Hold on. It's 1 John chapter 4. He explicitly makes the point that, John make, that James makes by implication. Um, what's also really interesting in reading James, in, do you remember in Galatians who Paul sort of semi-jokingly refers to as the pillars in the church? What three people? James, John, Peter. Peter, James, and John. Um, there's a lot of overlap of thought. You get the idea Peter and James and John probably work together a fair bit, and I'm, they actually have some similar metaphors and similar ways of thinking. I mean, all the writers of the Bible, their theology harmonizes, but it's certainly clear certain people are using similar ways of thinking and similar imagery and stuff. And so it's just interesting that First John picks up on the exact same. There's a lot of similarity between James's phraseology and Peter's, and you get the idea. These guys hung out and worked together, you know? Um, so First John 4, um, verse 20. Yeah, here it is explicitly, Lois. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. Notice also, John equates hatred with not love. There's no third option. In the first phrase, because otherwise you could say, because well, he simply says, if you, if you, look, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Why? Because the one who does not love his brother, he's, they're, they're interchangeable, hatred and not love. There's no, like, I neither hate nor I love. This is one of the reasons why I think we're either actively loving or hating. And step back again, hating simply meaning I don't care enough. Hating is the, so... Loving your neighbor as yourself, pictured by the Good Samaritan. Hating is simply walking by, because i got places to go, and I don't want to get messy and dirty. I might get blood on me. I might be late to the temple, says the Levite, and he goes on by. That's the contrast to love, right? So hatred, this is challenging, because ministry is messy, you know, and, and people are messy. And one of the, actually, we'll be talking about this next week, but one of the... Uh, the reasons why I think widows and orphans are so mentioned is you, they have no way to repay you. Service and, and ministry to them gives you very little in a practical sense. I think there's a great blessing to it, but the, te- like it's, it's gonna be, the opportunity cost is high, right? I mean, there are certain people I spend time with. I, get, I, I anticipate getting stuff out of it. I can't wait to see so-and-so. And yeah, I hope to bless them, but I know I'm going to be blessed. You go serve widows and orphans, or I think there's a great spiritual blessing, but as Jesus points out, they can't repay you. So if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. Why? Because the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he hasn't seen. It's the same exact logic as, as James in chapter 3. With our tongue, we, cur- we bless God and we curse man made in his image. No, it's, it's, it's incredibly convicting. <laughs> you're not the only one. On another interesting side note, sorry, this, I just find this interesting. Um, so has anyone ever heard the phrase imagio dei? 
It's just Latin for image of God. Um, theologians like to take things and put them into Latin or Greek. And so the image of God, we're told that man is made in God's image in Genesis 1 and 2. And I have seen so many books and articles on what that means, which usually involves comparing man with God and like, okay, maybe, like God's creative, man's creative. God speaks, man speaks. Interesting, by the way, if, if you want to go that route, throw the angels in as a foil. They speak. They have dominion. I'm not sure the image of God can be as quantifiable as here's eight points in which we're similar to God. If that's the way you want to go with the Im- defining the image of God, throw the angels in and it'll probably mess your little grid up. What's interesting to me is biblically, as far as I'm aware, the fact that man's made in God's image is only addressed two or three other places. It's addressed in Genesis 9, where capital punishment's put into play. Why? Whoever sheds man's blood, of man's blood shall it be shed, for man is made in the image of God. By implication, I think here in 1 John 4, and stated, strictly speaking, in James 3. What that means is, as far as I'm aware, there may be other places that talk about man being made in God's image, but those are the two or three that I'm aware of. When the Bible picks the topic of the image of God up in man, it does not give us more information about the what that means, but the so what. Because man's made in God's image, don't you dare kill people who bear God's image. Don't you dare talk in a demeaning, unrighteous way to people who bear God's image. God doesn't like that. And so what's really interesting to me is that the rest of the Bible, as it addresses man being made in the image of God, talks about the implications of how we ought to treat each other because of that. It doesn't give us much more insight into what exactly it means that we bear God's image. Um, anyway. I think, that's, I think that's interesting. Well, because if, if you play Jeopardy with the Bible, by, by which I mean, if we assume God doesn't speak redundantly or without purpose, then everything he's telling me are the things I need to know, which means if he's telling me something, I think, why do I need to know that? I'm asking the wrong questions. Or if I'm asking questions the Bible doesn't answer, I'm asking the wrong questions. If I want to know, well, what was God doing before creation? I don't have a whole lot of information on it. Apparently, that's not a really important topic for me to know. Like, Jeremy, you can be curious about that, but the Bible doesn't assume that's a question you need to be asking and worrying about. But this one over here, what's the image of God in man? I want to know what it is. You should be asking, because man's made in God's image, how should I treat him? That's the direction the Bible's going with the information it's supplying, which is instructive, I, I think. It's, anyway. Okay, that's an aside. Bennett. I am so sorry to bother you again. <laughs> um, when you said um, you're toying with the Bible, um, when I first started to read the Bible, I picked a chapter and I just read chapter Job. And, and I read that whole entire chapter. But then I started to have struggled to read it from the beginning to the start and to the end. And so how can I get it to help me be able to read this whole entire Bible throughout the beginning to the end? It's so hard. A uh, couple, couple thoughts. This, no, this is, and this is helpful, even in referring to getting back to keeping your face in the lamp. 
we, we live in a day with so many technological helps. You can get someone on your phone that'll read the Bible to you. You can sign up for daily reading plans that will remind you to read a little bit at a time. You can get together with another believer in person or on Skype and do Bible reading that way. Um, there, there are all sorts of ways to find that work with your giftedness and what works for you. I know some people love reading in the morning. I'm usually so groggy in the morning, that would be of little benefit. Um, I like to actually do a lot of my reading late at night. And so finding the time when you're most... I do want to read the whole entire Bible from the beginning and the start. I mean, beginning yeah. to the end. And I am struggling so hard. It's like... It's like needle poking me and like so hard to figuring it out. Well, after the ABF, I'll be happy to help you get an uh, audio Bible where you can read. It forces you to read along with them. Like I like Max McLean's ESV. I can set you up with that and, and find one of those for you. Those are really helpful. And there's some other stuff to, uh, to help with as well, Bennett. And there's one last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to let other people ask questions. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I feel like I'm hogging the microphone. <laughs> okay. Um, am I doing... Um, Toying with the Bible, since I like to read the certain chapter, um, certain book. I, I don't think I said toying with the Bible. I said a playing Jeopardy. Let me, let me clarify what I mean by that, because I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anyone to treat the Bible as a toy. Th there's a game show Jeopardy, where they give you the answer, and your job is to come up with a question. And I'm saying, because God, because we believe everything God says is valuable. There's no part of this word, if you think of like trimming meat that's fat that needs to be cut off, all of it's rich, all of it's valuable, all of scripture is valuable. Then when you come across a passage that doesn't immediately strike you as important or uh, making relevance, I must be asking the wrong question. In other words, saying to myself when I read this, what question should I be asking that this answers? Well, how should I be coming at the text where what I'm reading here is insignificant? And, and, and I don't always have the answers. To me, it's fascinating. In the Gospels, sometimes we'll read, the Pharisees conspired and plotted. I want to know everything no, about it, hold on. God you're, and everything. You're, you're interrupting. One moment. I'll give you a chance. Hold on. The Pharisees were told that sometimes plot and conspire, and other times we're told how they plotted and conspired. Well, clearly there are times I just need to know the Pharisees plotted and conspired. Other times, knowing exactly what they said is significant. Why? There's a reason. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm fascinated to find out. Go. What were you going to say? When there was a, it was close to Christmas time, Donna actually kind of helped me out to tell me to read Luke. And she told me every day when I usually talk to her every day, she told me to, did you read that chapter? And she said, we were on chapter 7. And I said, no, I should go Bennett, and read that. Bennett, I'll be happy to chat with you afterwards, but there are other people with questions. We're going to move on. Thank you. Questions? Anybody else? Oh, Steve Sparks. I have a problem. <laughs> a, singular? A problem, yes. Good um, for you. I have problems. <laughs> When, when I am talking, getting in my two cents worth, 
I'm not listening to the other person. And I think it's just physiological, but is it also biblical? Yes, yes. I've had someone say that to me more than once. Are you listening or waiting to talk? <laughs> no, uh, Proverbs 18, what's the number? I can quote it, I just don't know the numbers. Proverbs 18, to give an answer without hearing is folly and shame. My wife and I just recently had some small conflict where we did exactly this. I said something, she didn't listen clearly, thought I was saying something else, responded, I didn't listen enough to realize you misunderstood me, and then responded to her response, and now both of us are at cross purposes because both of us were quick to speak and slow to hear. Um, would that be a fair summary, Serena? The best part was we were agreeing with each other. Yes. <laughs> No, when she, when she understood what I'd actually said, she's like, oh, that's great. And so I said this thing. She didn't understand what I said. And then she responded negatively. I'm like, what's your name? Oh, giving me trouble. You know, and I'm like, why are you being so nice? I thought you're, you know, I didn't take the time to realize, I don't think you understood what I said. Hold on. Um, and so when finally we came to an accord, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> so, no, the, yeah, the Bible warns about this, giving answers without hearing. Um, speaking rashly, oh my goodness, there are a lot of proverbs that, that speak to that. Um, one person's case seems right till another comes and examines him, giving, warning us not to give judgments on matters till we hear everything. I mean, there's so many implications of that. I mean, how often do you see like a, I got to remember this when I'm reading the news, even when I read credible, detailed accounts of things. This is one witness. I haven't heard the other side to this yet. So, yeah. Being slow to speak and listening. Go, go, to James, go to James 3, right? James is going to um, give you some of the, the flow of thought. In 3, the section on the tongue in 3, 1 to 12, is directly connected to the section on conflict and wisdom because he's addressing people who would be teachers, so you have 3.1, not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. And 3.13, who among you is wise and understanding? So he starts by telling them that those who would be teachers probably should be fewer than they are because they're going to suffer a stricter judgment. And then because teachers teach using their tongues, speaking, um, he goes into how difficult it is to control the tongue. Then addressing those who already are in the position of teachers, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He, it's fascinating. His, his entire measuring rubric for wisdom is the fruit it bears. That's not the only rubric. But his is entirely, the, know the tree by its fruit. Does your wisdom produce bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts? Do not boast, boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now listen to what describes the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. And I think implied in that is I'm willing to hear you out. It, it, maybe there is something true to what you're saying. Um, one, a good, a good uh, exercise to undertake when you're having a disagreement with someone. Um, I'll do this sometimes. You tell me your position, I'll tell you mine, and before we go any f further, explain to me what I'm saying, and I'll try to explain to you what you're saying. I want to make sure I'm hearing you. Am I understanding what you're saying properly? Is this what you're saying? I think that's a great place when you're having a serious disagreement to say, okay, give me your position one more time. I'm going to try to explain it back to you. You tell me if I got it, okay? 
Well, that's really taking the time. That's really belaboring the point. And sometimes it can be necessary. But I've done that before with people. Hold on a second, because they're responding to me, and it, what their response doesn't indicate they've really heard what I'm saying. What do you think I'm saying? What, do you, what position do you think I'm taking? Well, flip it around. How well could I represent what they're saying? That's all in wisdom. And yes, to speak quickly, to not really listen, to not really understand, is to give an answer without hearing. Did you look it up, Serena? 8.13. Proverbs 8.13. Uh, 8 what? 18.13? Proverbs 18.13. To give an answer without hearing is folly and shame. It's foolish and it's shameful. That's, I've got that one memorized for a reason, Steve. <laughs> for people like, no, it's for people like me. That's why I've got that one memorized. Oh, he wants to go. Give him the mic. Give him the mic. And that kind of fits in with interrupting people. It does. It does. I mean, sometimes there can be an interrupting that's coming from excitement. Someone saying something you so agree with. I'm like, yes, you know. But there's also plenty of interrupting that's just, give me the ball. Right, right. Okay. Oh, Stacy. See, the peripheral vision thing is not fair at all, but okay, here we go. Here we go. I need a swivel seat. Yes. Okay. Considering maybe another category of people in terms of speech, um, for those of us maybe who need even more time to think through what they like to say, is there anything you could think of that you would point to as being um, a weakness or an area where someone could grow in that regard? Like in the middle of a situation, maybe someone's coming to me or someone else similarly for counsel, and maybe I'm lacking in that moment of things to say, and yet within a half an hour afterwards, many things come to mind. Is there a way to grow in that area? Is that a weakness? What would you say in that regard? Yes. Next question. No. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard for me, as someone who likes to talk and likes to try to help solve problems, to identify with the person who doesn't naturally do what I'm about to say. But I've certainly had many situations where somebody's asked me for advice or asked me something, and I got nothing to say. And I, I, the most memorable one was I was doing some street evangelism in New York City with Word of Life, and I came across a Jehovah Witness. And, he, and I was a new believer, believer of like a year, a year and a half. And he was an old guy, and he sat there sort of patronizing and grinning at me. Um, not grinning, but I mean, just sort of entertained and amused by me. And he starts throwing out objections, and I bat the first one off, and I bat the next one off. And finally, after about six or seven of his objections, he, to the deity of Jesus, he uh, throws one at me I got no answer for. He throws out Jesus in John 8, I believe. Um, it says in your law that we are, you are sons of the God, you are gods. Well, if he calls them gods, why are you mad at me? See, Jesus isn't saying, when he says he's God, he doesn't mean anything more than simply what the Psalms talk about man being gods. I was like, oh. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget this. I will never forget this. He says, don't worry, my dear boy, you'll figure it out one day. Well, I determined to never let that happen again. Um, so when I say I'm hardwired that when I don't have something to say, I, I don't want to repeat that naturally. But what I do is I make all these notes around my Bible. I, I, when I see something, frequently I'll have this happen. I'm reading something. I'm listening to something. I'm riding my bike. And all of a sudden I see how the Bible applies to problem X, whether it's my problem X or Serena's problem X or someone else. Okay, jot it down. Find a way to keep that stuff with you. I just uh, Last summer, and I'm trying to do it again this summer, I met with a bunch of men. 
each week or like once every other week or something to try to like take the basic topics of the Bible and human life, anger, lust, impatience, anxiety, money, worldliness. And like, what are some texts that we can have on hand and how can we get them on hand? These things come out so often. And if we're going to speak the truth and minister to the people, how are we going to have them nearby? So for some people, that might be memorization. I mean, Mitchell McClure has verses memorized and their locations that, I, that whoa. I usually can get chapter, like Proverbs 18, but I don't know the first number half the time. Um, other people, it's going to be notes in their notepad. Other people, it's going to be underlining. I mean, I do a sort of a hybrid hodgepodge. I got things written down, things written down in the margins. But however you work, find a way that works so that you can more frequently speak the words of life but I find those times when um, like an apple in gold set in gold and what is that one I gotta look that one up I have a rule at my house if you can't quote it look it up um, what is it one Serena yeah that's the verse but what's the reference um, I'm looking it up I'm looking it up um, hold on It's Proverbs. It'll be like triple underlined in here. I seem to memorize the reference. Um, anybody help me out here? Anybody? Proverbs 2511. 2511. Um, word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold in settings of silver. Those few times when I've had a word on hand and it's blessed somebody are so enjoyable to feel like, hey, dad let me pass along some of his life-giving word to somebody that I want to do it again. I, I find that, ad, not addictive, but I find that exhilarating and I'm hopeful to do it. And so for me, I'm naturally motivated to want to try to be ready. If, if that's less of a motivation, I challenge someone to realize the great privilege we have in speaking words to people and speaking words of life. And, and you, can, you can communicate divine truth to people and you can encourage somebody and you can hold someone back from making a terrible, you can do all these things. Life and death, according to Proverbs, is in the power of the tongue. Do you want a life-giving tongue? My, my wife's got something to say. So, but I'd just say find ways and talk to people and, um, and reach out. I mean, because, yeah, I'll have people who are encountering friends, dealing with things they've never thought through, self-harm, bulimia. What verse are you going to go to in the Bible for that? Well, there are people who've thought through that. There are books on my shelves. And, and so the church has been given a big resource of people. So if you're not sure how to speak to bulimia, ask Find somebody who's, hey, what would you do about, how would you think through that? And then learn, and hopefully you won't have to ask again. You know, th that would be my thinking. But, but it's hard for me to relate to the person who's not excited to, to, uh, to excel in that. Um, so do, do you, before Serena goes, is there anything else you wanted to say to that? Does that address what you're saying? Yes. No, I wanted to say that what, the other thing you do is when you learn something new, you ask yourself, could I teach it? Yeah. And then that actually sets you up for those scenarios where somebody needs something. It, the, actually, that's another tip I'll give you. I do this incessantly, much to Daniel's annoyance. Um, I did it this morning. I don't think I've understood something until I can communicate it. And so I'm reading a book on economics um, by Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. Frederick Hayek road to serfdom and he was explaining two different views of freedom and I wanted to make sure I understood it and so I said to Daniel had read it hey just want to make sure I'm getting this right this is one view view a this is view b right and now in my thinking that I've been able to express it okay I get it 
And until I can do that, I'm not sure I get it. So I'm constantly like a beaver chewing, reading, and then trying to find someone to talk to about it. When I'm reading books, I'm incessantly talking about them with people. And part of that is I can get it clear in my head as I communicate it. And if I can't communicate it clearly, I got to go back and read it some more because it's still jumbled in my thinking. Different people are wired differently, but there's a good test. Can you communicate anything about what you've learned to somebody? That's a great test of whether or not. And if you can communicate it to somebody now, you might be able to do it again in a fitting moment later. Yes. Hi. Um, to bring things more to a practical bent, uh, for anyone who knows me, uh, the filter in my head is not quite there. And very often, things will just spew out of my mouth, word vomit everywhere. Do you have any practical uh, things you could say towards controlling the ton for someone uh, uh, like me who's on the spectrum a little bit that uh, that's something that like I've never been able to do very well. Do you have any 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 practical biblical advice for controlling my ton and the weird situation that I have? The weird situation that you have. I think most of us have a hard time controlling our tongue. I think James says if you're able to do that, you can control your whole body. It, it's, I think it's meant to be hard. I think the whole point of chapter 3 is the tongue is inordinately powerful for how small it is. And it's inordinately dangerous and deadly. Um, and the whole thing, a little rudder turns a whole ship. Um, and if you can control the tongue, you pretty much have everything else covered. But taking Jesus' teaching that I call radical amputation, when he talks about cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye, I bet you, if I motivated you properly, you could control your tongue. I bet you, if I said, I'll give you $1,000 if you think before you speak for the rest of the day. I bet you could probably do it. I bet you if I had a cattle prod. No, 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 I'm not joking, right? I bet you, in short order, you'd learn something. Um, And I'm not suggesting starting there. No, I'm not suggesting starting there. No, no, people say I can't help myself. No, people say I can't help myself. I guarantee we can envision scenarios where you could. No, no, I remember... remember, uh, was at John Street talking about a, a man who, uh, who was having an adulterous affair with another woman. He said he couldn't stop himself, couldn't help it. And let me ask you a question. If your daughter walked in, what would you do? Jump out. I would. So you can stop yourself. Right? I can't help myself would mean I don't care. It would be in public. wouldn't matter. No. There's, there's scenarios, there's circumstances that you would stop. So get creative. No, there are family stuff like the swear job. Hold on, hold on, be slow. hold on. One second. She wants the microphone. Matthew. No, there are some families that have the swear jar. That's a creative way. Whenever you say something inappropriate, you put some money in the jar. If you told your wife, every time I speak without thinking, I'm going to give you five bucks, that would probably bear some fruit, huh? I'm saying get creative and get radical. I'd be, I'd be interested to see what happens if you, if you did things like that. And maybe nothing. Maybe you're so different and strange that you couldn't. I'd be surprised. I'd be very surprised. Mother. Go to law school. Go to law school. <laughs> my mother is married to a lawyer. So um, I think she's by implication speaking from experience that if you, if you learn the law, you will learn to keep your mouth shut. It's, it will not serve you in court. There are plenty of judges who will smack you down. Yes, Greg. Well, I was just thinking in uh, practical terms uh, for Matthew, and this would 
work for any of us. If I know I've got a problem in this area, I, I might have, I, I might establish three questions that I ask myself before I respond. And I mean, I, I don't have the three questions. I, you just need to establish what they are. Have I completely listened to them? Is my response really seeking to edify them? Is my response seeking to show how clever I am? You know, those kinds of, th you know, whatever they are, you establish them and before you speak, you, you run those through your mind and you will eliminate a fair number of those uh, episodes where you speak without thinking. Yeah. Give, give your friends permission to call you on it. If you think I'm speaking without thinking, just, Matthew, did you give any thought to that? Or whatever you want as your code word for how they ask, right? And just be like, no, seriously, call me on it. Call me on it ruthlessly. Call me on it like we're fighting cancer. Call me on it like it's life and death. Call me on it. Those are some things you can do. I mean, let people know. I, 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 I speak without thinking, man. I, I'm with you. And I need, to, I need people to call me on it. Daniel is good at that. He's a good friend. Um, my wife is good at that. And other people are as well. But no, but I need that. And people need to know that I'm not going to tear their head off if they do. You know what I mean? Um, so, oh, yes. Don, bring us home, Don. We got one minute. Go, Don. <laughs> um, to go along with what, um, uh, no, Greg, yeah, said. Uh, Emerson Egrich has written a book, I think it's called Before You Hit Send, but he has four uh, criteria for, for talking. Uh, is it true? Is it kind? Is it clear? And is it necessary? I'm guessing most of that's right out of Ephesians 4.20, right? Well, no, because, no, because James, is, I was talking to Jacob Moore this morning. What's interesting is James is purely prohibition. So Paul puts it positively, no corrupting terms come out of your mouth, but only such as is necessary for the moment that he may give grace to those who hear that will build up the listener. So he gives a positive criteria as well. It's got to be, is there any sense in which this is needful? Do I think this is going to bless anybody? And bless can mean like rebuke, right? Better is open rebuke than hidden um, love. But is this necessary? Is it true? Is it going to bless anybody? Is it going to edify anybody? And Paul says only that speech should come out of your mouth. So I need to be able to pass that test to some degree. I need, you ought to be able to say to me, Jeremy, can you tell me that what you just said, you gave any thought to whether it was appropriate, blessing, necessary? And if the answer is, hey, I didn't think about it, I'm wrong. Even if what I said ended up being just fine. Because where there's abundance of words, transgression is inescapable, right? Um, Lois wants to actually bring it. Oh, no. Who is? Oh, Deb. Okay, no, Deb, final I word. just wanted to know the reference you just said. To which one? Uh, to the whatever is... Oh, kind, it's Ephesians 4, is it 19, you said? 429, hold on, yeah, Ephesians 4. Um, see, I can get the chapter. I'm usually pretty good with chapters. But why that verse is so helpful is oftentimes when you talk to somebody about corrupt language, like, well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it, right? And then this verse makes it clear, yeah, what's right with it? So it, it's helpful, for me at least, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, literally no rotting speech, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. So there's a positive limit. 
If I can't say it fits the moment, gives grace, or builds up, I need to keep my mouth shut. So it's not simply only, well, what was wrong with it? What was right with it? Okay, good day. <laughs>